One of my biggest struggles in early sobriety was falling asleep. And even now, years in, sometimes my brain is just too active and too anxious to rest. This used to cause a lot of stress for me, but now I take Tanasi before bed and it helps me relax and get to sleep. My husband has even said that he has never seen me sleep deeper. As a former scientist, I appreciate Tanasi's commitment to science and research. They provided a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. This team of scientists discovered Tanasi's one-of-a-kind patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula. Studies show that it's twice as effective as CBD alone, and 5% of all revenue is given back to the university to support ongoing research. If you're struggling with anxiety or trouble sleeping, then I encourage you to give Tanasi a try. It comes in a variety of different forms like lotions, soft gels, gummies, tinctures, and drink concentrates. I've been using the tincture before bed. Go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Tired of your gut feeling like it's been through more drama than a reality TV show? Say goodbye to the chaos and hello to a gut that's as peaceful as a zen garden with Symbiotic Plus from Ritual. Let's be real. Alcohol turns your gut into a wild roller coaster ride, leaving you feeling more queasy than thrilled. Say goodbye to the gut battles and inflammation wars. And with 25% off with the code POWER, this is a great excuse to give your gut the TLC that it deserves. So whether you're starting your day with a green smoothie or hitting up your favorite Starbucks for a coffee, make sure to add Symbiotic Plus to your daily routine. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Ever try a buckwheat pillow? They are nothing like those fluffy clouds that most of us are used to. You know that feeling when your pillow seems to betray you and it collapses under the weight of your head and no matter what you do, you can't fix it? Well, Hulo Pillow is here to change that. They sent me one and it's pretty unique. Even Rudy, my cat, likes it. And you can try it out too and get a discount with the code POWER. Hulo Pillow supports your head and neck, unlike those flimsy pillows that leave you feeling like you've been in a wrestling match all night. And forget about flipping to the cool side constantly. Hulo Pillow stays cool and dry, making sweaty nights a thing of your past. And you can customize your comfort. Add or remove the filling to get the perfect fit for you. Try it for 60 nights risk-free. And if it's not your jam, you just ship it back for a refund. So go to hulopillow.com power for up to $20 off per pillow when you buy multiple pillows, plus free shipping on every order. Again, that's Hulo. H-U-L-L-O pillow.com slash power. I'm Jill, and I'm a sober scientist who talks about the science and psychology of addiction. There are a lot of things that influence developing an addiction, and none of them are that we're weak-willed losers. In the Sober Powered Podcast, you'll learn how and why addiction develops, how alcohol changes the brain to keep us drinking, and most importantly, that you're not alone. The things you experience are experienced by many of us. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Silver Powered Podcast. I have such a treat for you today. I never tell you guys that you have to listen to this episode, but I'm saying it today. You gotta listen to this episode. You have to listen to the entire thing. It's not very long, but it was amazing. I'm trying to have more experts on the podcast. So today I have for you Dr. Anna Lemke, who is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine, and she's also the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. You may know her from her new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which became an instant New York Times bestseller. And I highly recommend reading it if you haven't. So there's a link in the show notes to grab the book from Amazon if you haven't read it yet. It is amazing. I've listened to it twice already. So in this conversation, we discuss how whatever perceived positives that you think alcohol is bringing to your life, like less anxiety, for example, that with repeated drinking, alcohol causes or worsens the very thing that you're trying to improve. We also discuss why alcohol isn't actually your best friend or the only thing that's helping you in your life. Why a 7 to 14 day break is not long enough to see the truth about your drinking or experience any of the benefits of sobriety and how 30 days off can significantly improve your mental health for the majority of people and really show you cause and effect of your drinking. We also discuss why doctors are hesitant to ask about alcohol and drug use, which is a topic that I know a lot of us have wondered about. And I think that the way that Dr. Lemke explained this is really satisfying and makes a lot of sense. She explains ways to evaluate the amount of alcohol that you're consuming, how long it takes to restore balance in the brain, how to set expectations in sobriety. And then I also got her opinion on sobriety obsession, which was the topic of episode 73 of this podcast. So she explained her view on sobriety obsession and if we can get addicted to sobriety. So again, this episode is amazing. I'm so happy with the way that it came out. I'm so excited about it. Every time I listen to it, I have the goofiest smile on my face. So I really hope that you will listen to the whole thing. I hope you enjoy it. And if you did enjoy it, could you please do me a favor and share this with someone that you think would benefit from it? So let's get to the interview. Thank you so much um, for coming on my show and discussing dopamine and your book, Dopamine Nation. I'm really excited to talk to you. You're actually the first expert that I've had on my podcast. Oh, wow. I feel no pressure. Yeah, I feel super privileged. <laughs> yeah. And it's exciting to talk to someone um, with so much knowledge and experience in addiction. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so before we start, I'm really curious what made you interested in studying addiction medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, it was one of those things where it was sort of like the last thing I wanted to do, but it became incredibly obvious at some point that it was a huge need. When I graduated medical school, I knew nothing about how to help people with addiction. You would have thought that would have gotten remedied after a residency in psychiatry and a fellowship in mood disorders. But in fact... I graduated from those with no knowledge about how to help people with addiction. And really almost everything I learned, I learned initially from, well, from patients over, you know, the last 25 years who have been my best teachers, but also from colleagues, most of whom are docs in recovery. Uh, 
because in the early days that those were pretty much the only people that went into addiction medicine were um, doctors who themselves had struggled with addiction. And then obviously, you know, from the science and, and all that learning um, that over the last couple decades, but I think probably the, the sort of moment when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm a bad psychiatrist because I don't know anything about addiction was a patient that I saw. I'd been seeing her for about a year, treating her for depression, prescribing an SSRI Paxil and noting that she was often nodding off in the sessions and then thought, well, maybe she's having some kind of extreme reaction to the Paxil, you know, like maybe she's a, a slow metabolizer or something. And I was thinking about writing it up as a case report. And then not long thereafter, her brother called me and said, well, she's been in a rollover car accident. I said, oh, my goodness, what happened? He said, well, she's been using again. I said, using what? He said, using heroin. Isn't that what you've been treating her for? And it was in that moment when I, was re I realized, oh, my goodness, I have really messed up here because I hadn't once asked her about drug or alcohol use. Now, she hadn't volunteered it, but that's not really her job. It's my job to ask about it and I didn't do it. And, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff, but not the, the thing that was really the most important thing. So that's when I realized, you know, I'm I'm harming patients because of my my ignorance and my avoidance, really, of this important area. I love that story. And I have been someone that's gone to a therapist and hid my own drinking. Um, sure. So I, I felt her position there. They're not going to ask you about it. It's not really your job to tell them, you know, what is hard to talk about anyway. So it's so really doctors are poorly educated and don't, you know, address the most obvious thing in the room that they can't even discover is the most obvious thing because they're not even asking the basic questions. And that was true for me. Yeah. Um, so in your book, Dopamine Nation, um, you started off by talking about your own experience with Twilight, which I loved. Um, I loved it for a couple of reasons. I loved it because um, I thought it was very vulnerable of you to share that and kind of show me a reader who has struggled with addiction that, you know, you have this version of something going on too that right. you've worked through. And because I did exactly the same thing with Twilight, I read, I read each book in one day. It's <laughs> uh, a long time to yeah. sit there and read. And then I did yeah. the exact same thing when 50 shades of gray came out, I just would sit there and obsessively read them. Yeah. So it made me, it made me laugh a lot and it like, mm -hmm. it helped me ease into the book. Oh, um, good. So I appreciate that. Was that hard for you to, to share that? Did you feel like shy? Yeah. Super scared. Right. Cause like, if you, if you look at almost all the books that have written by, you know, MDs, they're, they're really all about how compassionate and wonderful, um, you know, the doctors are, and, and I'm sure they are compassionate, and wonderful people, but you know, what I was proposing to do and what I ultimately did was to say, Hey, I'm kind of messed up. Um, and it was really scary for me, but at the end of the day, I felt it would have been hypocritical not to, because my patients were willing to tell and share their stories to help other people. And I thought I can't, really in good faith, ask my patients to share their stories, you know, pseudon with using pseudonyms, but still pretty much everything else is, you know, verbatim as they told it to me. 
um, without being willing to admit kind of my own experiences that have shaped my views on this on this topic. Yeah, and it showed a lot of compassion. I think for sober people, we when someone isn't like sharing your exact experience, it feels a little scary to hear from them or to talk to them. And you you like equalize yourself, even though you haven't had the same path that I've had. Um, you showed like that you kind of got it. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. And it was a good way to start the book. Good. Thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. Um, so what I wanted to talk to you about today was the pain pleasure balance. So a lot of my listeners and people that I've spoken to drink for a purpose. Mm -hmm. It's doing something positive for us. And for me, like I thought alcohol was the best thing that ever existed. I thought life would be sad and miserable and boring if I never drank again. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. get past these beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've learned through researching addiction on my own and through reading books like yours is that whatever it's doing for you, it's also causing that thing. And I enjoyed your explanation with the balance um, and the gremlins being, you know, our addiction. Um, So I wanted to discuss that a little bit more. So if we could think maybe of someone who's drinking to cope with anxiety and they feel anxious and they drink and the anxiety goes away. So then they learn like, okay, alcohol helps with my anxiety. Um, And then when they try to not drink because their suffering is increasing, now they have all of this anxiety. Uh, So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your, your balance analogy in this situation. Let me first just say though, that um, I really appreciate that most people use substances to solve a problem. Um, and that it really works. Otherwise, it you does. know, yeah, they, they wouldn't do it again. But but I think the, the take home message is that it works initially, but with repeated exposure over longer periods of time, not only does it stop working, but it actually then can turn on us and create the very problem uh, that we're seeking to solve. So our best friend can turn into our worst enemy. And the way to understand that is to really understand the neuroscience of pleasure and pain. Um, One of the revelatory findings in neuroscience in the last 100 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So imagine a board on a fulcrum or a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. When we do something pleasurable, it tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to uh, be tipped for very long to pleasure or pain. And the way that a level balance is restored is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus is. So let's say that I consume alcohol. I I actually shouldn't use alcohol for me because alcohol is not my drug of choice. Let's say chocolate. I consume chocolate. My balance tips to the side of pleasure. I release a little bit of dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter in the brain's reward pathway, and I'm feeling good. But no sooner has that happened than my brain will adapt to the increased dopamine by downregulating my own dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline levels, but below baseline levels. And I imagine this as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to 
bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance. So they don't get off when it's level. They stay on until that balance is tipped in equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate or in more extreme cases, the hangover, the come down. Now, if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off. Dopamine levels are restored to baseline and that balance is once again a level balance. But the other really important aspect of this balance is that the balance remembers and the gremlins once generated never entirely go away. So with repeated exposure to the same or similar rewarding stimulus, in my case, pleasure, what happens is that initial response to the side of pleasure gets shorter and weaker but that after response gets stronger and longer. So when I have a second piece of chocolate, I now get two or three or four gremlins hopping on the paid side of my balance to bring it level again and then tip to the side of balance. And then they go even further because that's the way we are wired. That's basic biology. That's how pleasure and pain are wired in our brain. Why? Because from an evolutionary perspective, it's a beautiful design for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. Imagine, you can't even imagine a better system, right? One that will make sure that whatever's pleasurable to us will not remain so. That over time, it will be less and less reinforcing so that we become eternal seekers, always looking for more, which is really important to motivate us. And the biggest motivation we get is paradoxically not from the experience of pleasure, but from those gremlins on the pain side of our balance. Because when we that happens, We want that pleasure again, not even to feel good, but just to get out of that painful state. And with repeated exposure to an intoxicant or a rewarding stimulus over days to weeks, months to years, we essentially end up with enough gremlins camped out on the pain side of the balance that we are in a chronic dopamine deficit state. That means that nothing else is pleasurable, right? Our focus is totally narrowed on that one thing. And we think it's the only important thing in our lives. We need to keep using, not to feel good and get high, but just to feel normal, just to level a balance. And importantly, when we're not using, we're in a constant state of pain or withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use our drug. I get so many patients who come in depressed, anxious, unable to sleep, unable to concentrate, and they're using some kind of highly reinforcing drug or behavior on a regular basis. And they tell me that's the only relief I get. It's the only thing that's working for my, whatever the source of pain is. And I say to them, I hear you that in the moment, it relieves your distress. But what it's really doing is alleviating withdrawal from your last dose, getting you temporarily out of that dopamine deficit state that the drug itself caused in the first place. So the solution here is, in fact, for you to stop using that drug or behavior for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance for our own endogenous endocannabinoid, endoopioid, endodopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine systems to upregulate and for that balance to ultimately be restored or replaced back to homeostasis. Because that's what we need to do to, to be able to, number one, not be in a constant state of pain, anxiety, insomnia, depression, irritability, but also to be able to see true cause and effect because we can't see it when we're chasing dopamine. And also 
uh, to be able to enjoy other more modest rewards. Because when we've got a balance to the side of pain, things, other things really are not pleasurable. People will say to me, oh, I need a new wife or I need a new job or I need a new major. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe if you could get your pleasure pain balance back to a level baseline, those other things would look different to you. And very often that's the case. Yeah, and it sneaks up on you that adaptation. Um, something that I've noticed in my sobriety is that now the little things are really pleasurable. Like I'm really into right now lying in bed and like in the morning I wake up and I lie in bed and I'm just like, oh, this is the best feeling ever. Like oh. look at this bed and my blankets. And I never felt like that before. And you don't realize like, when you're chasing alcohol or whatever it is all the time, you don't realize these other things like stopping to matter and going away. And, and then it just leads you to this place where like, there's only one solution to your problem. And, and like, you can't even imagine, like I couldn't even imagine um, not drinking for a week. Mm. And that was something a therapist had challenged me to do was one week. And I had had friends ask me to do 30 days and it's like, no, like absolutely (laughs) not. No, I can't live without this thing. Um, so I think it's so interesting that it just happens so slowly that you can't even realize how stuck you're getting. You know, it's a great point. It's so insidious and we're so blind to it. And it is really fascinating, like, for, you know, my my own, even with all my knowledge about addiction, right, I got addicted to these romance novels. Now, you know, you could sort of laugh and say, well, it's sort of a trivial addiction. But, you know, it followed a very similar trajectory over the course of about two years. And it was interfering with my life and my ability to sort of live consistently with my values and enjoy things that I had previously enjoyed. But really, it was very true that I didn't see it unfolding, you know, as it was unfolding, I would make jokes about it, but it wasn't really until I stopped for a month and number one, saw how hard that was for me. And number two, then kind of looked back and saw how, how much importance that activity had, had sort of taken over in my life. It had become this really weighted dominant thing. Um, and it's just, it is incredible how when we're in it, we can't see it. Yeah. And you, even in the beginning, in early sobriety, you still can't see it. Right. And it takes, it takes a long time for like this mental clarity to come back. And that's why I liked when you were talking about this 30 days, um, I think you were talking to a patient and she said she had done like one or two weeks before and it's just not enough. And even though like I did, I did one week and then I was like, okay, I did a week. It wasn't that hard. Not an alcoholic. We're good. Right. <laughs> I proved right. it. Mm-hmm. Um, but why is 30 days so powerful compared to like seven to 14? 30 days in my clinical experience is the minimum amount of time it takes for those neuro, for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. And it's so important for homeostasis to be restored because it gets us out of that constant state of craving, irritability, anxiety, and also allows us to enjoy more modest rewards. But importantly, it also gives us the clarity, again, to be able to look back and see true cause and effect of our use, which is very difficult um, beforehand. So often I will have patients say, well, I stopped for a couple of days or I stopped for a week. And I say, you know, that that's sort of like the worst of all worlds, because 
you're still in withdrawal, right? You're, you've got your pleasure pain balance tilted to the side of pain. You're doing all of the painful part with none of the rewards. You really have to go get to a month essentially in order to really be able to get out of withdrawal and for, you know, dopamine levels to reset themselves and to really, you know, number one, feel better. And number two, um, you know, be able to see with clarity what was really going on in your life. Also, I will say that there are data to support my clinical experience. So there's a, an important study by Brown and Shuckett that took adult males who were using alcohol in an addictive way, who also met criteria for major clinical depression, put them in a hospital and gave them no treatment at all, other than that they were not allowed to have access to alcohol. And after 30 days, 80% of those individuals no longer met criteria for major clinical depression. So that was really significant because what it said is that it was the alcohol driving the depression in the vast majority of those individuals. And it was based on that work that in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that um, the recommendation is when you're trying to differentiate, you know, a form frust or um, independently occurring mood disorder from a substance-induced mood disorder, you really need that person to have a minimum of 30 days not using that substance in order to, to tell the difference. There are also functional imaging studies done by Nora Volkoff and others showing that in the brains of people who stopped using serious drugs uh, two weeks prior, that they still have below normal dopamine transmission in the nucleus accumbens, which is, uh, you know, the sort of center or hub of our brain's reward pathway, um, suggesting again that two weeks is insufficient to get out of that dopamine deficit state um, and really be back at baseline homeostasis. Yeah, I love those studies. I think those are really interesting, um, both all of the mental health ones, because that was my experience. Um, I had I had alcohol induced anxiety and then I normally have depression, but that escalated um, very far into like suicidal thoughts and all of that. And I was cured of all of that when I stopped drinking. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? And it's a lesson that I learned basically just through treating patients and seeing it patient after patient after patient, all they had to do was stop their drug for a month. I didn't have to prescribe anything. I didn't have to do backflips in my office. And, but still it's really an uphill battle in the, in, you know, in the general field of psychiatry, because the first thing most psychiatrists will do is not even ask about substance use, but even if they do, you know, they'll prescribe an antidepressant or they'll prescribe a mood stabilizer or they'll prescribe a sleep aid. And some of those drugs are actually in and of themselves addictive. So now they've potentially, you know, exacerbated the problem. Um, but it's just this, you know, realizing the power of these highly reinforcing drugs on, and, and behaviors on the pleasure pain pathway and the way that they can induce this dopamine deficit state, which I think is just such important knowledge for people to have. Uh, because although it's hard to stop, it can have a huge, huge ripple effect. Definitely. Um, why do you think it's so uncommon for doctors to ask about alcohol use or drug use when someone comes in for a specific complaint? You know, I think the main reason is that, well, a big reason is that we get very little education. So even now I've been campaigning for decades to get more 
education in, the, in medical schools um, for addiction. The average medical school gives their medical students about one to two hours um, of you know addiction medicine <laughs> training in four years. That's not very much, but it's more than I had, which was essentially zero. So it's partially that they come out uh, not knowing anything, but it's also that um, in not knowing anything, the, doctors never want to feel um, incompetent. I mean, none of us does, right? So you don't want to ask a question that you have no solution for. And if you were to ask your patient about their substance use and say, yeah, I'm, I'm shooting up heroin every day, or yeah, you know, I'm, I'm snorting methamphetamine, or yeah, I drink a six pack every night until blackout. Um, you know, if, if they told you that and you had, you had no idea what to do about it, that's a really bad feeling. So unfortunately, you know, the default is just like a don't ask, don't tell policy. Docs don't want to know because they don't have believe that they have the tools. And part of my writing documentation was also for, you know, healthcare providers, mental health care providers to be able to teach them, you know, even if you're in a private practice, clinical outpatient setting, and it's just you in your office, don't abdicate responsibility on this. You can you can do something about this, right? You can talk to your patients and find out what they're doing. You can suggest the 30-day dopamine fast or abstinence trial to the appropriate patient. You obviously wouldn't want to do that for every patient, and there are caveats. But um, but you know, you can suggest that you can see how they do. If they improve, there you go. You know, then you you have this. And the great thing about the dopamine fast is that when patients do come back and feel better. I no longer have to convince them about changing their substance use. They're now motivated, right? Because they feel better. They did the research. They got the data. They feel better and they're motivated. They're not always motivated to continue abstinence, but they're almost always motivated to use less and to change their relationship with that drug. And if they don't feel better, you know, if that 20% comes out, well, then that's also really useful information. So, okay, there's something else going on here in addition to, you know, a potential substance use problem. Let's get in and and look at that too. Um, If they're not able to do it, even when they committed to do it, that's useful information. Well, maybe this is outside your willful control. Maybe you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe we should look at a higher level of care. So all of those things are, I think, really useful. I never thought about it that way with doctors that they like if you told them, yeah, I drink a bottle of wine a night. Um, there you go. And yeah, like, oh, right. Wow. <laughs> right. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Right. Or or sadly, you know, doctors who themselves have substance use problems. I've had doctors tell patients so oh, that's OK. Or, you know, I, I smoke I smoke pot every night. So like, oh, that's that's all right. That little pot's OK. It's like. You know, it might be in some people in some contexts, but you wouldn't want to stop there, right? You'd have to, you want to ask more questions and explore what's really going on. Definitely. So, what if you had a patient coming to you? I'm visualizing myself a couple years ago, and somehow my drinking came up, and you asked me to do 30 days, and I was like, no. Absolutely. (laughs) What if someone's really like, I just can't do that. I don't want to ever stop. What would you say to them? Well, I have a number of different techniques that I've evolved. First of all, um, you know, I have this dopamine acronym that I talk about in the book and the D stands for data. One of the first things I do is just 
ask my patients what they are using in a lot of specific detail. Because when we have to put into words what we're actually consuming or how we're actually spending our time to another human being, it makes it real in a way that it can remain unreal when it's in the dark recesses of our brain. Um, and I've had many patients who will say, well, let's see, well, I, you know, I drink, I drink alcohol. Oh, you know, how much do you drink? Oh, you know, a couple, a couple glasses a night. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, is it, you know, wine, you know, how much of the bottle? It's about half a bottle. Okay. Half a bottle is actually two and a half standard drinks. Cause we, you know, we have data on that. So that means you're actually drinking two and a half to three standard drinks tonight. Yes. Okay. So, and that, you know, for one week that that's 21 drinks. Is that right? Gosh, I never thought of it that way. That's, I guess you're right. That is 21 drinks. Yeah. Okay. You know, and just, wanted you to know that um you know epidemiologic studies show that the healthiest people drink no more than one to two standard drinks per week and that for an adult female if you're drinking more than seven drinks in a week or more than three in a day you're basically in the risky range you have increased risk for all cause morbidity and mortality like oh really wow i didn't know that so you know it's just talking about it makes it real then I asked them the O for dopamine sense for objectives. Why do they use, right? Well, like in your case, it helps my anxiety. Okay. I, I want to know, you know, what the reason is. Everybody has a reason. The P of the dopamine acronym stands for problems. What are the problems with it? You know, what, what can you identify as not going well? Again, all of this sort of brings to the fore these sort of latent hidden narratives that are easy to ignore until we tell another human being. And then the A of dopamine stands for abstinence, trial, or dopamine fast that we've just been talking about in order to reestablish dopaminergic homeostasis. The other trick that I sometimes do, especially with young people, is I ask them to look at the long arc of the narrative of their lives. So if I have a patient who says, um, now I'm, you know, I talked about in the book a young woman who was smoking cannabis, and I said, well, you know, would you be willing to try this abstinence trial? No not interested. I said, okay, that's cool. I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you still want to be smoking like this 10 years from now? She stops and thinks, okay, 10 years from now, I'm going to be 30. She's like, now I'm definitely not going to be smoking like this when I'm 30. Okay. All right. How about five years from now? Pause. No, not going to be smoking like this when I'm five years from now. It's okay. So we got it. We got a sense of a timeline. How about a year from now? It's like, pause. Okay, doc, I get your point. If I don't want to be smoking like this a year from now, why not just try stopping today? And I think that perspective, kind of going outside of yourself and observing yourself is actually a trick that I learned from a patient of mine who was, um, I don't write about him in Dopamine Nation. I write about him in my, my other book, uh, Drug Dealer MD. He got addicted to heroin, but first he got addicted to prescription opioids through a dentist's uh, prescription. And he was deep in it. You know, I mean, he was uh, basically snorting, snorting heroin, like, you know, hourly living in, you know, his drug dealer's house and helping out with that whole business and really got totally caught up in it. And then one day he sort of thought about his whole life and he thought to himself, okay, I'm 20. Do I, do I still want to be doing this when I'm like 40? And he was like, definitely not, you know, and they just sort of worked backwards from that. And was like, gosh, I've been doing this for a year. Like that's a long time. I think I need to stop. So somehow that time frame can be for some people a really powerful way to shift their gaze on themselves. And that can really then kind of motivate the desire for change. Yeah, I use that for myself, too. Actually, I, I quit right before I turned 30. And I had this ah. weird thing with my 30th birthday that I was going to have my life together and be happy and 
every year I would look at my life and how miserable it was. And by the time I'm 30, by the time I'm 30 and, and I finally like got it. And I remember my 30th birthday was like, it was such an amazing day for me because I was so proud of myself, but there is definitely this thing with thinking about yourself, even a year into the future. Like if you continue exactly how you're going right now for another year, like imagine that. Right. Right. Yeah. And I often say to my, I love the AA mantra one day at a time, Mm -hmm. because really a good life is made out of a chain of good days. And if we can just get a good day in followed by another good day, and that's all we have to focus on, you know, before, you know, you look back and you're like, Oh man, that was a good year. Oh, wow. That was a good decade. You know, okay. I'm, I'm in my fifties. Not bad. Pretty good. You know, and, and the pretty good isn't even about like material accomplishments or profession. It's like, you know, was I a good human, right? Did I, did I do the right thing when it was hard to do the right thing? Um, you know, did I, did I, did I make the best choices that I could make in those circumstances? Those are things, you know, to feel good about. Yeah. Reflection is so powerful. Um, so if someone does do 30 days and they achieve it and they're like, okay, I'm good now. Is their pain pleasure balance regulated? Is it like able to be sensitive to natural rewards or is there still more time that is needed to heal? Everybody's different. Some people take a lot more time. There is this protracted abstinence syndrome. For most people who have been using drugs like alcohol heavily for long periods of time, in my experience, it takes frankly 18 to 24 months to really restore homeostasis, even sleep in documented studies is disturbed at, you know, 12 months and is resolving or nearly resolved at 18 and 24 months. So I think, you know, tincture of time is really the name of the game. Again, in my experience, by 30 days, people get an inkling of how good they can feel, right? They feel better and then it's worth pursuing, but they really don't fully restore homeostasis, honestly, um, until about 18 to 24 months. And that's, that's, you gotta have a lot of patience, uh, but it's, you know, it's worth it. This is kind of castles that we're building uh, in the sky and um, they take, they take time. Yeah. That's been my experience. Actually. I celebrated two years, two weeks ago. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And this is when all this like happy to sleep and like, look at the sun, like all that has started. Um, And I think it's funny that you bring up sleep too, because that's actually what I'm talking about on this week's podcast episode, or if you're listening to this one, the previous podcast episode, I'm talking about how sleep recovers in sobriety and like the timeline and yeah, 18 to 24 months is what um, a lot of the studies that I read saw. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I, that I talk with my patients a lot about is sort of expectations around life, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, uh, you know, one, one thing I always emphasize is like recovery is so much better than using, but recovery and life in general are hard, you know? And so when I'm talking about like living in your life and the joy of recovery, what I'm really talking about is tolerating a lot of pain and suffering because that's what life is. Whether you have addiction or you don't, life is hard, you know? And being alive hurts. 
And so I think there has to be also these kind of tempered expectations. It's not like you get into recovery and it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Yep. Did that, did that hurt your ears, by the way? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, what it comes down to is like, you know, there's like a lot of boredom and a lot of like, what now, you know, <laughs> or like, here I am at this party everybody's drunk. I've discovered I hate parties, you know? And it's like, yeah, parties really aren't that fun, you know, for most people, unless you're intoxicated. So it's a lot of reworking identity and expectations and like going like, here we go. Here's another day, you know, but, um, but it's still worth it. Something I heard you say on another podcast that I needed to hear um, was you were talking about, a new addiction to sobriety. And that was 100% my experience. I was so, I gave up other hobbies Mm. so that I could do my podcast and like all the other stuff that I do on top of my full-time job. Um, And it helped my recovery. Obviously I needed to do that. Um, But can we actually get addicted to sobriety and does that is that a permanent addiction or does that eventually balance out the longer time you have you know I I don't like using the word addicted to sobriety or addicted to AA or whatever you know your recovery path is because to me it's so obviously better than drug and alcohol and behavioral I mean so obviously a healthier you know, adaptive life path. And in fact, I think even people without addiction should get into recovery. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not going to ever call it an addiction to recovery, but, but I will say that, you know, the temperament or the type of person that gets addicted to stuff is a person who needs like intensity. These are intense people and whatever they do, they're going to bring that intensity and, and that's okay. You know what I mean? I mean, it's okay to be a person who needs to do things all the way. As long as the thing you're doing is healthy for you and healthy for others and gives back to the world and and all of those good things. So, um, so I, I don't really think about it like that. I just think about, you know, are you a, are you a person whose dial goes to 11? This is spinal tap. I don't know if you're too young to know. Okay. (laughs) And if you are, you know, that's okay. You can own that. You just have to channel it in the right direction. Um, and you know, that's clearly what you've done. So that's great. Thank you. Yeah. I am a very extreme person and I took, I drank to the extreme and then I got sober to the extreme. Right. And I think probably over time, eventually, you know, that'll kind of level out a little bit. Um, but, but you can just let yourself be addicted to recovery and sobriety. That's okay. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Um, I appreciate the validation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And thank you so much for joining me today. It was so nice to talk to you um, and hear more about your experience and everything that you've learned through your career. Well, my pleasure. It's been nice to talk to you too. Is there another book in your future or anything that we should look out for? Oh gosh. Good. So yeah, that's, that's sort of my thing that my great solace right is the 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 writing time I really it's a great it's it's been a very nice part of my life I love my patients love my family but that kind of uh, creative process so probably um you know I'm, I'm thinking about it what I want to write about next we'll see 
Um, well, thank you again for joining me today. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope that your first podcast with <laughs> another person went, went well enough that you'll want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, you set a really high bar. Okay. <laughs> well, it was really nice to meet you. Thank you. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.